The fundamental problem with central banks is the belief that someone knows how to deploy uh, scarce resources better than people know how to deploy it, their own resources for themselves. That's the fundamental underlying issue. And you can take the perspective that it's those people are just ill-informed and they think, you know, they're well-intentioned. They think they can spend the money better than you. They just don't know that they can't. Or you can take the view that they know they can't spend the money better than you, but they don't care because they're spending the money on the things that they want to spend the money on. And they're very aware of how it works. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. One of the only podcasts that Lewis and I know of that is about entrepreneurship, investing and business, but coming at it from the perspective of young people. Most podcast hosts, they're old. They've already started their business. They've already sold them, but we were just starting. So it gives us a fresh perspective, a fresh outlook, and it makes some of our questions really interesting from crypto to real estate to whatever you might be interested in. We've got a podcast for you. We've got almost 80 episodes in the backlog for you to go listen to and, and, and a great one for you to listen to today with David Bailey, the CEO of Bitcoin Magazine. Yes, David Bailey is such an exciting guest. I'm very excited for people to listen to this episode. Not only is he the CEO of Bitcoin Magazine, the CEO of Bitcoin Inc., which is a group of companies all related to Bitcoin. There's a hedge fund, there's the magazine arm, there's the event arm that hosted the very popular event in Miami, Bitcoin Miami 2021, that will be hosting again in Miami in 2022. They also have the Carrot app, great way to earn free Satoshis, which is the smallest unit of the Bitcoin, for those of you who don't know what that is. David Bailey is an Alabama alumni, so roll tied to that. This conversation, very wide ranging, as seems to be the case with David Bailey. He's an incredibly interesting thinker. He's been holding Bitcoin, hodling, as the people in the community say since 2012, which if you have any appreciation of the charts of Bitcoin price is a very long time. And we discuss his story from the time he was literally our age in, in college, 20, 22 years old, that time he graduated, how he started his career in Bitcoin and how that's led to being the CEO of Bitcoin Magazine, which he purchased from Vitalik Buterin, founder of Ethereum. He tells that story in this podcast. We start out with a little bit of technical details, maybe the first five to eight minutes, but those quickly disappear after that. So don't leave. If you hear those and don't like technology, maybe skip ahead if you're not into that, but promise the whole podcast is not the nitty gritty. If that's not your thing, we discuss the future of a all Bitcoin civilization, what hundred percent adoption would mean. And if the transition to that would be peaceful or what that would look like, we discuss free speech on college campuses and online. And finally, career opportunities for people interested in Bitcoin. Why he believes it is such a fabulous opportunity. Cannot wait for you to listen to this conversation and we will switch over to it now. David, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. We are very excited for this conversation. I had a great time, the conference you put on in Miami. So I've been looking forward to this ever since then. Cool. Thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, our first question for you is a word that I first ever heard come out of your mouth on another podcast. It's hyper Bitcoinization. Could you define what that word is, why you've kind of identified that as your personal mission and what the major dominoes are to realizing that goal? Yeah, uh, hyper Bitcoinization is is really the process of demonetization of all fiat currencies and Bitcoin becoming the global de facto um, reserve value system for the world. And so hyper Bitcoinization, um, I mean, and also when I say this is the definition, this is a term that this industry invented, you know, different people have slightly different takes on it. But to us, hyper Bitcoinization means 100% adoption of Bitcoin, 100% penetration of Bitcoin. Uh, every transaction that happens in the world, even in the solar system, because we think Bitcoin is, is beyond just Earth, um, it happens on top of the Bitcoin value system. So um, 
we got a long ways to go before we get there, but that's the mission. That's the goal. And we're all in until we get there. Yeah. And our, one of our recent podcasts with Brandon, who you work directly with, we got into a little bit of Bitcoin in space. Uh, so I encourage people to go listen to that episode to realize some of the details that that would entail. Yeah. No, so the easiest way to convert, you know, if someone's a space fan, they're very easy to convert to Bitcoin because you just have to ask them, you know, what's going to be the monetary policy of Mars? Uh, and very quickly it becomes apparent that Washington, D.C. should not be setting monetary policy of another planet. So, Well, I don't want to get too else, out, on a, out on a limb here, but Mars is 12 and a half light minutes away. And from a mining perspective, how okay. do, how do okay. we solve okay. that? <laughs> yeah, okay. So, you know, that is a deep conversation. But, yeah, the center, center of hash, man. Have you, you've, I'm guessing you must have read the, uh, the uh, Bitcoin and uh, uh, what is it? The Unchained Capital, Bitcoin in uh, space. I have not read that. I, we did talk about it with um, with with Brandon, and that's a, really a point that I brought up. But yeah, I'm interested to hear your take on it. Yeah, no. So uh, conceptually, you have what's called the center of hash, and so basically, block propagation time is from is based on proximity to where the hash rate is. So uh, in theory. Um, uh, depending on where the mining rigs are manufactured, where they're, you know, where the actual hash rate is being derived from, if it's happening from resources that are on, to, on Mars, um, over time, the uh, center of hash would move to in proximity to the place that had the most hash rate. So you could have basically mining happening in uh, space, not on the planet, because you're right, the block times are too long for the speed of light. Um, so it, it starts happening in space. And then little by little, it gets stretched further and further into space where all of a sudden, maybe the center of hash is in between Earth and Mars. And then, you know, you start just kick off an economics game. If the if the economy of Mars becomes bigger, if it has more energy resources and more mining capacity, manufacturing capacity of the mining rigs, then it actually become unproductive to mine on Earth. So uh, there's very interesting game theory there. That's the ultimate um, downfall yeah, I, of, of Earth is when the center of hash becomes uh, yeah, becomes oh, yeah. on Mars. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So um, so there's a, there's a really deep article about uh, needing to have the, the only purpose for another blockchain to exist is one in which the block times are much longer because block block time block propagation is basically your geographical limit in at the speed of light of how many people can adopt your your uh, currency. So like if we colonize other solar systems, we're gonna need a block time of like two weeks. So that way, anything that can, you know, mine a block or propagate a block within a two week radius can be mining on the same network. And so you'll have like, you know, Bitcoin's the 10 minute block time. That's like earth near solar system, et cetera. Then you might need to have like, you know, let's call it soul coin which is going to be um, the blockchain for, you know, uh, our galaxy, okay? And it has, like, a two-week block, block time. And then, like, uh, well, galaxy to galaxy, you're going to need a blockchain for that. So maybe we have another one that has a one-year block time. And so uh, they all do SHA-256 mining, and then they all nest into each other. So, you know, Bitcoin yeah. nests into SoulCoin. SoulCoin nests into the next one. So there's some really wild ideas out there. Um very few people are exploring them. Highly recommend reading this article. It's one of the, the most intriguing articles I've read. We got to get the hyper Bitcoinization on, space. I think... on Earth first. You know, we, we don't yeah, want to put the cart right. before the horse. <laughs> um, that's right. 
That's so, right. could you briefly walk us through? I know this is kind of a loaded question. Just briefly, from college to where you are now, like you you graduate, what do you do then, and how do you get to where you're at now? Yeah, so I actually got into Bitcoin while I was in college. So, you know, what dorms were uh, were y'all in? Lakeside East, represent. Lakeside East, Ridgecrest. Ridgecrest, Ridgecrest might be a little newer. Which, yeah, which Ridgecrest? North Tower of South. All right, yeah. So I was in Ridge room five hundred nine. Cool. All right. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, I think I was in room two two three, Ridgecrest South. Okay. So that was That's my freshman spot. year. Um, but uh, so yeah, I mean, I was a big uh, finance nerd. Uh, I created an organization in Alabama called Forza, which was doing micro lending. Uh, I was really into value investing. I was part of CIMG and helped helped set that up while I was at school. Um, I always thought I was going to go into investment banking. It's what I was excited by. I was interested in. I had always felt that money ruled the world. And so if you wanted to shape the world, you had to do it through the lens of, you know, the money, basically. So I always intended to go into investing or value investing or a hedge fund or something. My senior year of college, um, uh, one of I had interned at a hedge fund, and one of the guys I had interned with sent me an article about Bitcoin. This was first semester of my senior year. What year and is this? My immediate reaction: This is 2012. So, um, my first reaction is that you know, Bitcoin's a scam. Like that's the obvious reaction. It's like, okay, this is. I mean, you can't get more pie in the sky than creating your own monetary system. So, um, I set out to prove that Bitcoin was a scam, and you know, newsflash, it's not a scam. So, you know, as I was going through my diligence process, I was like, okay, I can't explain why this won't work. And if there's just a one in a million chance this works, like the market that it's disrupting is the biggest market there is. There's nothing bigger than value. Like literally everything is a subcategory of value. So I should buy some Bitcoins. Like the expected value of one Bitcoin is massive at a one in a million chance of it succeeding. So uh, bought my first Bitcoins like November 2012, right around the halving. Um, and I got just, so, I mean, super lucky because uh, <laughs> January 2013, the like the second bubble in Bitcoin history, my first bubble starts to take off. And so uh, second semester of my senior year, I, I mean, I almost dropped out of school. I mean, I stopped going to class. I stopped caring about anything like it. You know, uh, seeing an investment go up 25x in value, it went from 10... January 2013, I think we were at like 13 bucks. April 8th, April 10th of of that same year, we we're at 260 bucks. Um, so you know, investors, value investors, they go, they hope like one you know, one investment in their entire career, maybe they'll make 10x. And I just made 25x over four months. I mean, I'm making more. I go to sleep at night. I wake up. I've made more money than I've ever even held in my, you know, like it just was a, a shocking experience. So, uh, but then that bubble crashed, it went from 260 down to 50. And so I lost more money than I'd ever lost in my life at that point in time too. So, uh, it, I basically took a moment to do some reflection and I was like, okay, am I getting caught up into something that is like a waste of my time? You know, is this the real deal? And I decided to go to what was basically the first Bitcoin conference ever happened, Bitcoin 2013, which happened in May of that year. And um, I went, 
actually interviewed to be employee number one at Coinbase, and they, they turned me down. Um, it was the brightest people I had ever met. And I felt like I had met really bright people at, at UA. I was in the fellows program. You know, I had done internships at a venture capital group, at a hedge fund. I mean, I felt like I knew smart people. These people were next level smart. I mean, these were the nerdiest people you can possibly imagine. And they were working for free in their free time in their garage on contributing to some project, contributing to Bitcoin Core, building some sort of, you know, the first iOS uh, wallet app interface. I mean, like, you know, and it was such an obvious signal of like, wow, all of these brilliant people are so passionate about the same thing, working for free, lying to their employer saying they're sick so that they can sneak away from work to come to this conference. Like this has legs. Like this is people that are, are passionate beyond whatever the price of Bitcoin is. And so I just decided, you know, like I didn't like have much to lose. I mean, I'm just getting out of school and I'll live with regret for the rest of my life. If there was something that I could have been a part of that actually deeply aligned with my own personal beliefs of how freedom and financial access, you know, worked and for me to be there, to be able to be a part of that and then just say no, so I can what go, you know, work as a grunt at some financial firm. So I was just like, fuck it, let's, let's do it. And so I went all in May, May, 2013 and haven't looked back since. So I, I started with a magazine. I started a magazine called uh, Why Bitcoin, which basically just explained what Bitcoin was. Did that because um, I didn't know what to do. And everyone was wondering, you know, what is Bitcoin? Why would I want it? Where can I spend it? How do I store it? What is Bitcoin mining? It's the same questions again and again and again and again. So it's kind of like what you guys are doing here with this podcast. Like I wasn't smart enough to realize I should have done a podcast instead. So, you know, I did a magazine and that magazine became a vehicle through which I was able to meet interesting people, which I'm guessing is really what this podcast is for y'all as well. Mm-hmm. At that point in time, everyone was very open and accessible because everyone was broke. So when people are broke, they're a lot easier to talk to than when people, you know, when their time is money. So I spent a couple of years traveling the world, uh, going to every Bitcoin conference, every Bitcoin meetup, literally, I don't know. I mean, for, for a while, I definitely had the world record for number of Bitcoin conferences attended Israel, Ireland, Argentina. Chile, Brazil, uh, China, Japan, Korea, I mean, everywhere, Um, which gave me a cool view into the Bitcoin ecosystem, how many different places it was growing, why it was growing in those places, which even though all of these communities would share certain ideological values, each community had a different reason why they love Bitcoin, which was interesting. Like, in Argentina, they'd be like, oh, we love Bitcoin here because, you know, there's a law that says we can only do two internet purchases per year on the internet without getting permission from the government. And it's like, that's not viable, but it's like, that's a that's not how it is in the United States. So it's a completely different perspective on, we like Bitcoin as a payment tool. You know, you go to um, China and it's like, yeah, like it's, we really struggle to make investments outside of the country. It's hard to get $10,000 or more out of the country. We like Bitcoin because we can buy a lot of it locally and we can send it wherever and get whatever money we want. So uh, it, it just gave me a, a, a wide lens through which to understand Bitcoin and just made me even more bullish on Bitcoin. 
then, um, you know, through those journeys, I became friends with a company called BitPay and some guys that were running a magazine, Bitcoin magazine, uh, Vitalik Buterin and uh, Mihai. And um, they they wanted to go start this project, this Bitcoin 2.0 project that later became Ethereum, but they needed to divest uh, Bitcoin magazine. So I bought Bitcoin magazine from them so that they could go do their thing. And um, so then I had Why Bitcoin and Bitcoin magazine. And then... You know, before you knew it, like I had the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, which I bought off Adam Levine, um, and he's kind of one of the OGs of Bitcoin, created the first Bitcoin podcast um, that he founded with Andreas and created like the first NFT, uh, created like the first quote token. I mean, so uh, cool guy. And I started another media uh, publication called Distributed, which was like enterprise blockchain. And so like for... I'd say six years of my uh, uh, career, I was hustling really hard and chasing whatever opportunities I saw. Um, rather than thinking really strategically, I was just always trying to make sure that we capitalized on where the money, we saw the money. Cause it was like, we were always bootstrapped. We were always trying to have to like live off of what we made. So when enterprise blockchain became a big thing, it was like, we got to get something for the IBMs of the world. And we launched distributed, you know, when, when ICOs became a big thing, we, we started this business ICO age out of China, which became the biggest ICO platform. So like we were always chasing the latest fad that worked really well for us for a while, but you know, we ended up scaling our business from one person to like 110 people. And you know, in 2017 we made, I don't know, a lot of money. We made a lot of money, like hun, hun, you know, half a billion, I don't a lot of money. 2018, we lost uh, basically everything that we made. Um, so, you know, that was a very painful experience. And I learned so many things from that. And we basically had to scale our organization down from 110 people to 20 people, which is just a horrific thing to go through. And I, I don't recommend it to anyone, but it does shape who I am today. So I'm, I'm, I am glad I went through it. In the darkest period of time of that process, it was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I'm, I've am i made more money than I could ever imagine. I've almost lost as much money as I've made. And I'm, I'm losing it on businesses I don't even care about, that I don't even have conviction about. Like, I got into this for Bitcoin. I have conviction around Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the real deal. I'm working with all these token projects. Like, I, I know how the sausage is made. I'm not going to call them frauds. So, you know, some of them, you know, many of them are frauds. Some of them, you know, we call it scamming yourself where you convince yourself that this thing is a good idea, you know, which is innocent, but doesn't make it a good idea. And so, you know, we had all these businesses that we're like treating as if we cannot let them die. And we're taking our precious resources to deploy into them at the cost of, you know, Bitcoin magazine could go under. And it's like, Whoa, we got to stop here. We get, we need to go, if we're going to go bankrupt, we need to go bankrupt on something worth going bankrupt for. And, you know, I'm going to live the rest of my life with regret if we lost it all, like betting on something that honestly, I don't even know why I was betting on it versus if I went bankrupt betting it all on Bitcoin, like I will sleep soundly at night. And so we decided 2018, just divest everything 
go all in on Bitcoin. So we um, sold distributed. We uh, uh, divested ICOH. We had a project called Poet that we divested. I mean, brutal process, but we decided to launch Bring Back the Bitcoin Conference. So we decided if we're going to focus on Bitcoin, we got to make the Bitcoin community fun, which at this point in time, we had just gone through a civil war and everything was like really fractured and mean and people hated each other. So it's like, let's make Bitcoin fun again. That was our slogan for 2018. And we launched the Bitcoin Conference, which was the first Bitcoin-only event that I'm aware of that wasn't a developer event since 2014. And uh, we called it Bitcoin 2019. And that event was awesome. I mean, it was a really amazing moment when everyone was there. I, I still have people come up to me and tell me that Bitcoin 2019 changed their life and that they decided to go all in on Bitcoin and focus on Bitcoin at that event. And so... You know, we had product market fit with that conference in a way that none of our other products had ever had product market fit. Like, how do you know if you have product market fit with your business? You know. Like, if you don't know, you don't have product market fit. Like, when people are banging down your doors being like, when's the next conference? When's this happening? Like, I'm, I'm, I will rearrange my life for this. Like, that's product market fit. And so um, that validation from that was like, this is where we need to drill deep. And so we made, you know, Bitcoin Magazine, Bitcoin only, um, the Bitcoin conference, Bitcoin only. Uh, we took our wallet business we were trying to build and we, we, we pivoted to a lightning, lightning wallet that is, we're still tinkering with. Um, and then we launched a Bitcoin only value fund called UTXO. Um, and, you know, it was, it's hard to stay focused, but it's literally the smartest thing we ever did. It's the reason why we are having success now. And now our business is booming. And, you know, I think that, you know, BTC Inc. is probably, its portfolio of assets are probably, you know, if not the, one of the most influential voices in the, in the Bitcoin community. You know, our view is that everything is downstream from Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin has scaling problems, everything else has scaling problems. If Bitcoin has an issue with some, like, you know, layer two stuff, everything else has an issue with layer two stuff. And so if you can be the most influential voice in Bitcoin, you're really the most influential voice in all of crypto, regardless of whether you cover all of the other stuff going on. All those other things are downstream. So, you know, we've gone from, you know, trying to salvage a business that almost went bankrupt. I mean, being weeks away from bankruptcy to, you know, business is booming. You know, we are very frugal, like that's ingrained into our culture now, but we're, we've grown back up to 50 people, even with our extremely frugal mindset. The Bitcoin conference has become the largest Bitcoin event or crypto event in the world, um, bigger than consensus, even though we're Bitcoin only, which shocked a lot of people because we just, I mean, we turned away you know, we could have doubled the amount of sponsors that we had at this conference if we had allowed other stuff to sponsor. We turned away at least $10 million in sponsorships from companies that did not have a Bitcoin angle to what they were doing. And um, even though that seemed crazy, that's what made the event cool. And that was, that's what made it unique. That's what made people want to be a part of it. And so again, it speaks to the power of being authentic and being focused. And like the fast money people, they're drawn to that. And, you know, as long as you're authentic and focused, they'll, they'll be there if you ever needed to go after them. But you're kind of destroying your, your, your golden cow, so to speak, if you do.
So, yeah, I mean, that's 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 my <laughs> journey so far through crypto. Uh, made money, lost money, grew businesses, shrunk businesses, grew them back again. You know, we've done venture deals. We've done mining deals. We've done the enterprise blockchain thing. We did, I mean, uh, ICOs, built tech projects. I mean, we've, we've kind of done it all and we've been burned in almost all the things that we've done. And, uh, that process of getting burned has shaped who we are today and why we are Bitcoin only. We don't consider, uh, I say we, it's the Royal we, I don't consider myself a Bitcoin maximalist because Bitcoin is like ordained by God and you know, uh, all these other projects are, are just, uh, inferior. Um, I'm Bitcoin only because I've seen how shitty and difficult it is to build a decentralized project and the power of Bitcoin to be able to do that absent any marketing team, any, you know, DAO, any foundation, any, you know, everything that could go wrong with Bitcoin has gone wrong and we're stronger than ever. So I'm just, my naivety has been ground up into a pulp and you know, I'm just resigned basically to Bitcoin only. And I hope these other things are, are successful, but I'm skeptical on most of them. Well, that was an incredible journey uh, walking us through everything from the time you were pretty much in our exact shoes to where you are now. Uh, lots of lessons to unpack. And that's the beauty of recording it is that we can re-listen to it to make sure uh, Guys, we old, got told are y'all. I'm 22. You're 22. I'm 21. Kyle, how old are you? 21. Dude, guys, you are in such an exciting place in your life. You will never have more energy than you have right now. You will never have more passion than you have right now. You're at the beginning of something totally brand spanking new that a 45 year old Wall Street executive coming into this is probably at a disadvantage to where you are as a 22 year old. Eight years from now, you're gonna have two bubbles underneath your belt, two, two Bitcoin cycles under your belt. By the time you're in your early 30s, as if you can stay focused on this ecosystem, you are going to be young, you are going to be rich, you're going to have lived many experiences. And uh, uh, I mean, dude, it's like, uh, what's that book called by um, uh, uh, Gladwell? Um, outliers. 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 And it's like, uh, it has the chapters about people being born in the right place at the right time to be a part of the right trend and how Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are roughly of the same age. And that's not an accident. Like, guys, this revolution that's happening right now is bigger than all of them. And you guys are born at the right time, at the right place and focused with the right energy. Like, this is the all's world to conquer. I hope you're excited. Very, very excited. Hearing shit like that what? gets me pumped Besides up. Besides just, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, very excited. I'm just trying to get the wisdom out uh, at the same time. Besides just, you know, taking the fiat I have or someone in our position has and buying yeah, Bitcoin so you, and earning money and using it to buy Bitcoin. Yeah, but what besides just, you know, to put, taking their assets into Bitcoin because that's clearly not enough to like fully capitalize and participate in the revolution. I mean, it probably is enough, but like we can do more because we have energy and enthusiasm. Yeah, so I mean... Uh... I would probably do different things if I was each of you because you'll have different uh, backgrounds. So if I was computer science, I mean, I'd be developed, I'd be contributing to open source projects. There's very few open source developers. They're, they're, you know, somewhat treated as a, a what's the word uh, in religion? You have um, not prophets, but like, uh, no, like oracles or something like, 
you know, being an open source uh, contributor in this industry is like the most revered thing you can do. And so I, I don't have a computer science background. I could not jump into that world. But if I did, that's what I would be doing because it's it's still such a small world on the on the developer side. And it's really much more open and welcoming than people think it is. And you can quickly make a name for yourself. There are Jack Mallers is like, I think he's 22 years old. Like, you know, uh, he's very, very young. So it's like, you just jump in, you make a name for yourself quick. Kyle, if I was you, I would, uh, uh, first off, like the amount of money in capital that you guys have is, is, is nothing. Not to be disrespectful, but it's like, y'all are broke college. You're right. (laughs) You're not expected to have any money. So the things that are valuable are your ability to build a network relationships, effectively a Rolodex and experience. Those are the two things that you can get that are valuable. You have neither of those things right now, but they are accessible to you. So, you know, on the relationship side, you guys are doing it. Like kudos to y'all about doing a podcast. How many episodes have y'all done? You'll be our 80th. This will be around 80. 80? Yep. Yeah, this will be about 80. Wow. Guys, I'm impressed. Like that's a level of commitment and execution that's not not easy at all. So, uh, job well done. So, um, I would keep doing that because you're you're building a relationship. Um, you're, you know, I can tell you that after we have this podcast, podcast, if y'all send me an email, I'm gonna read it and see it and and stick out to me. And you need to do that as much as you can with as many people as you can. You need to go to every meetup you can. Like you need to meet every pleb and every entry level person, not just the big people, because the entry level people are who become the big people. Like when I got into this space, there were a handful of people that were big, but most people were little people. The big people at the time are no longer big. They're gone. They're, they either made a bunch of money and retired or they scammed themselves or X or Y or Z happened to them. Uh, the people that were the interns, the entry level people, the you know people just out of school getting their first job, they're now CEOs of their own companies, or they're C suites at a company, or they're they're running their own venture fund. So, the people who are at your same level in terms of age and and experience, like find the ones that are passionate about the space that are going to make it eight years, and like those are the relationships that you can build that are authentic that cannot be replicated and like are immensely, immensely valuable. Go drinking with people, go party with people, like, you know, like celebrate someone's birthday with them. Like just, you know, build an authentic relationship. Uh, two, you got to throw your time full time into this space. Like school does not matter. You're not learning anything useful, Kyle. It's a total waste (laughs) of your time. In fact, almost the more time you spend learning at a university is like time you have to spend unlearning those things because, you know, go ask your You're econ the choir. anything about Bitcoin. 100%. I, I guarantee you every Bitcoin professor at Alabama thinks Bitcoin is a scam because it, it runs ideologically opposite of what their whole academic career is built on. So, you know, the like, do not waste your time there. Um, Find a place that you can get an internship in or a job, or if no one wants to hire you because you're, you're too green, work for free. I guarantee you after three months or six months, if you're a hard worker, like 
they're going to be asking you, hey, we, we need you in this mid-management role because we're so desperate for talent and we're, we're so desperate for someone that we can trust who's going to be a basic executor who understands how the basics of how this stuff works. If people are just so illiterate about how it works, you will rise through the ranks so quickly and get a, and get a good paying job. But don't worry about the money because any money yeah. they're going to pay you is still going to be shit relative to the long term of well, you know, what you'll be worth eight years from now. Let me be a little so selfish. Just, and ask yeah. so my I, I love I have a passion for real estate how do you think that these that real estate and and what you're talking about intersect and how how in your opinion do you think I could maximize uh, being at that intersection that's a tough one I I would probably say it's 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 a tough one um, it would either be on the lending side Working with some people, there's a couple of people trying to work on um, basically making it where people can use Bitcoin as collateral for mor mortgages and opening up that mm. world. That's awesome. NYDIG is working on it. That's, that's gonna be hard to break into uh, without like a resume of financial back, like a financial background. Um, but you know, hey, if you are willing to work for free and you're smart, most people will say yes to that. So I mean, and once you get your foot in the door, like. The rest of it will come as long as you just are are uh, driven. Well, I got to um, come to Nashville and tell you about my real estate crypto lending idea. Then, all right. So, <laughs> so there you go. So then the the second thing would be on the the mining side. Uh, you mm, know, that's a good point. Every mining deal has a real estate element to it. It's buying uh, power plants. It's buying warehouses. It's buying uh, uh, energy sources, and so. You could be packaging those deals, scouting for those deals. Um, there are a bunch of Chinese miners coming over right now who are desperate to meet Americans that are trustworthy, that know what they need, and can uh, scout for them and speak English. And you know, there's um, a load of opportunity there. So, but I think that if you if you come in with the mindset, hey, it's got to interface with real estate, you're holding yourself back. Like, you got to you just need to come in and be like. Anything that I can get, I'll do. And then I, I guarantee you, you need to do it fast, but uh, I guarantee you that 24 months from now, if you did it today, within 24 months, if you wanted to go find a new career at a new company, you'd, you'll have 50 job openings of, uh, that people would happily hire you in with 48 hours notice into those roles. You'll have, the world is your kind of pearl, so to speak, of opportunity. So don't- If we had two years of crypto experience, yeah, if you had two 24 years months of crypto from now. Experience, yeah, 24 months from now. So like, don't pigeonhole yourself in like, oh, I need this perfect thing. Just get anything. And then 24 months from now, be like, yo, NYDIG, hire me to come do crypto lending for you. I'll have two years experience. I just spent my time doing this. I just spent, like, you know, that, um, yeah, that would be my advice. Kyle, you're muted, but I'm going to say on your behalf, we've got to talk to Colton, uh, our, our friend we just had on the podcast a few weeks ago, runs Pomp's crypto jobs. So we got to hit him up and get real serious on that. But Dude, just, just, just get an internship. I mean, the yeah. uh, we just had four interns. We literally offered everyone Which a one was job, your favorite? basically. Uh, <laughs> well, the, I think the, the two that are going to stay, Zell and, um, well, I don't want to... I don't want to leak any. Zell's fine. There's Shout out Zell. That's that was the only name we were looking for. You can stop at Zell. Zell's your favorite. Yeah, that's fine. Confirmed. We can stop. We can yeah. stop there. Right. Shout so, out David. So Good enough. You know, we'll 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 see if he uh, 
has the cojones to go through with it. But, um, you know, I, I, uh, really smart kids, you know, oh, yeah. when they start, we don't give them the time of day. It's like, we, you know, your interns, you're replaceable, like just like uh, grind and whatever. But after three months, we kind of like them and like, you know, like we want them to be successful and we're like, you know, have a relationship and like, you know, that's, that's what it's all about building relationships. So if you can just get your foot in the door so that you're in the place to build the relationship, that's going to go so fucking far. And, you know, I've hired, I've hired, I don't know, five, six, seven, a good number of people from Alabama who have come in, um, with basically less than what you guys have now. Cause you have a podcast with 80 shows underneath your belt. That's actually very impressive. Truly. Um, so people who've come in with less than what you guys have now, you know, Brandon, for example, you'll have him on his, his y'all's podcast. Brandon's 26, 25. That sounds um, about right. Uh, he's been working for us since 2017 started as an intern it's 2021 so he's been with us four years you know um if brandon's not a millionaire he's close his rolodex is deep he could get a job at basically any company now in the ecosystem he could start his venture fund or hedge fund tomorrow and go be able to raise a couple million dollars for it like you know he's still got a lot of development to do but in four years time, that's how much progress he's made starting from zero. Um, and so y'all are already ahead of where he was. Do you still think that's true for, I mean, it's all relative in crypto, of course, but, uh, what feels like a giant, like a uh, Gemini, a Kraken, like kind of these are, uh, uh, block the ones that seem to be less crypto ethos from like a court, uh, culture perspective. You want to lean into the crypto ethos. You're totally right that as companies grow, um, you know, like every crypto company had a chip on its shoulder. And so like there was a period of time in where they all wanted to hire like people from the real world, financial world, because that's like, you know, yeah, treat us seriously. Our people, they come from JP Morgan and X Golden Sachs. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot of it comes from like the CEO of those companies being like, I'm ready for people to take us serious. Um, those companies I'm generally bearish on. Like if you don't have the crypto ethos, I don't think you're going to make it. And, um, you know, I know a couple companies right now that started, oh, I can't say any names, but started very authentic. Let the corporate shills and bankers who don't actually understand what's going on here. And if they did probably would not be on board and, uh, into their company. Um, and then they've lost control of their company, which this almost happened to us, but the, you know, fortunately we ran on money before it could happen to us. But, uh, uh, those people will take control of your company from you and then they'll run it into the ground. And the, the people who work at the company I have in mind, it's a household name, all the best people, the, the, the insiders, the people who built the company, the people who, who get it, who have the relationships with the customers they're all bouncing. It's, you know, they're like, this is a sinking ship. Um, and you know, I, I, um, would be surprised if that company is around in any meaningful way five years from now. So, uh, lean into the crypto, like go to the place where a wall street banker is going to be uncomfortable because now they're on your turf. You get it. They don't get it. Don't go to a place where it's the environment that they created 
and you don't get it or you're you're new to it and and they're comfortable like flip the script that's what i like about the ethereum community like the the DeFi community uh it is so uh they lean so hard into it and the whole you know ape into stuff and the their ability to make fun of themselves bankers are uncomfortable with that and you know that's why you see projects run by 20 year olds that have a billion dollars there and shout out uniswap yeah so you know like uh i say lean into it those are the most bullish companies i mean and they're the companies that five years from now they're not going to be struggling they're going to be the, the billion dollar companies that people were no one saw it coming no you can see it company well like, since everything's downstream from bitcoin and you're the number one voice in Bitcoin, it might be a good place to start, you know? For sure, for sure. But there's lots of there's lots of good companies out there. Yeah. And you wanna find a company that has a great culture. And you know, that's something I, I didn't understand. But a culture is like, a, a culture is what allows a business to scale. And a culture is the health of a business. And if you go to a place that has a really bad culture, means there's something really broken about the business and the business is not gonna make it. So, you know, if you go to a place that has a great culture, not only does it mean that they have a, a business that is, is able to manifest that, a, a good business, but it means that that business is powered where it can grow a thousand X because there's a certain point in time, like any founder, like there's a breaking point in a business when it goes from 10 people or let's say 15 people to you know, let's say 50 people. That's a critical moment in a business because you go from everyone being a direct report to one founder who can have a personality to other people managing people. And so you have now a hierarchy in your organization. And culture is what enables all of your different managers, all of your different leaders in the business to be able to make decisions quickly about what needs to be done without every decision having to come back to you. Where, so you don't have command and control because they're aligned with the culture. They know what the mission is. They know what needs to be done. They know how you would think about the problem if they came and talked to you about it because they know, oh, this is part of our culture. This is part of our culture. This is part of our culture. You know, David say no to this. It's too expensive because we're cheap. You know, David would say no to this because it's not Bitcoin focused. David say yes to this, even though it might not make money because it's hyper Bitcoinization focused and this is gonna grow our community. And so that empowers people to move quickly which is what enables an organization that is, you know, at 45 people to quickly grow to 1,000 people. So, you know, and it's, 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 I think it's, it's difficult to, to spot a good culture if you've never seen a good culture. If you've seen a good culture, it's kind of like product market fit. If you see a good culture, you know it. Mm. And when you see a bad one, it's blindingly obvious. But if you've never seen a, a, a good one, you can be a part of a bad one and not know it. So, you know, beware. you can assume that's just, you don't know that something better even exists or to even like think of looking for something better. One way I heard you describe what happened kind of in your company when you shed all of the altcoin, alt focus enterprise stuff is all of a sudden people like started working longer hours, working like all the time and everyone was having fun at work. And like that also is part of your competitive advantage because you know, the company that everyone's doing a labor of love is, is gonna outwork and continue and innovate. Uh, absolutely. And like people who share that company culture and that mission, they come to us and they want to work here. You know, we'll tell people now, like we used to pay people fat salaries and try to recruit them from like 
cor- corporate environments, totally the wrong thing to do. Now people come where you're like, hey, we're going to ask you to work twice as hard as you work at another job, and we're going to pay you half as much as, as somebody else would pay you. Like, that's what you're signing up for. So you better care about the mission because it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy. And people are like, hell yeah, I'm in. Like, that's the type of people you want to work with. And, like, those are the types of people that are going to make it happen because they understand that this is not just a job. This is a mission. And so, you know, that that's, like, our company culture has changed unbelievably. And, like, you know, the, the um, you know, like another thing, like when you have product market fit, your business makes money. Okay. Well, when your business makes money, you're in control of your destiny. So you get to do the thing that it feels right to you. Whereas when you're losing money, uh, you're, uh, we broke up there. When you're losing money, you are desperate for your next check. You're desperate for, for finding investors who will give you more timeline and runway to figure it out. And so you're trying to cater to them. And so uh, you start abandoning what your values are when your values become whatever the values you think you need to have in order to be able to get the next person in that, to put a check into your company. And so like now that we're a profitable business, we have like, you know, we're not looking for an investor. Like, you know, and also like, fuck you. Like we don't need your money, which then empowers us to make the right product decisions and make decisions that maybe an investor would think is irresponsible, like having a conference that's Bitcoin only where you turn away 10 million bucks worth of sponsorships because they're not Bitcoin companies. Like no reasonable investor would want to see that happen, but we were able to do that because we controlled our destiny. And uh, guess what? When you make those decisions that seem controversial, but they turn out to be right, investors go crazy to want to invest in those companies. It's like such a, it's like dating or whatever. It's like, you know, like there's nothing that makes an investor that want to invest more than it's like, I don't, I don't want your money. I'm not going to let you invest. And then it's like, I have to invest now. Mm-hmm. So it's a weird dynamic that exists from all of that. But I think it's just, it's, it's validation that when you're doing your thing and you're doing it at the pace that works for you, then you draw investors to you like a magnet. You don't need to go chase investors. I don't know if we lost yeah, Kyle there. Uh, I have a question. No, I'm here. When, okay, perfect. When Bitcoin kind of reaches some of these next steps and truly, as you said, becomes the de facto monetary system, like a lot of your best case scenario, do we reach your best case scenario in a nonviolent way in the next five to 10 years as a society? Because it's, it's it's it is a revolution that you know we're trying to be a part of. It's you know there's the I, I don't know the quote from Austrian economics, but you know it's something. The only way we ha- have this happen is have it happen without people noticing. But there comes a point where people start to notice. So that's that's the question. Yeah, that's it's a tough question. I mean, I don't know the answer to it, and I and I uh, I grapple with it. I mean, you know, my my hope has been that this was going to move so fast that it was going to catch everyone unaware. That, that's what I've been hoping for a long time. You know, I, I have taken the view that, you know, Bitcoin is going to be like, like, uh, you know, what, you know, like the Catholic Church is the United States and like, you know, the Catholic Church never collapsed. It just became irrelevant. And so I was hoping that things would move quickly too quick for people for government to respond to 
and then over time government would become play the same role in your life that church does which i'm not I'm, maybe you are very religious people but you know church is not the dominant facet of your life like it used to be it is an element of your life you know so um uh i don't know if that's the case anymore and uh you know i am very concerned about uh the macro environment that we're in with the um you know, I mean, I, I talked to a student from Alabama not too long ago where, you know, I was t talking to somebody about making a sizable donation to the university and um, how if I were going to make the donation, it like it would have to be around, you know, freedom of speech or freedom of thought. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, we got to be careful using the term freedom of speech. Like, that's a that's a, a word that's a um, I forget what he said. Uh, you know, people interpret that as meaning that you're pro hate speech. And it's like, huh? Like, you know, I mean, maybe the world's changed a lot since we were in school, but like that just seems like it's changed uh, uh, so quickly. I, it's hard for me to even fathom it that like people are like, freedom's a bad word. Freedom is just a bad word now. And, um, you know, it's it's scary that there really isn't a place in the world that is uh, a refuge for those that um, think a certain way to be able to go to. There's always in, in world history been a, a frontier that, that those which are persecuted could go to as refuge to build a new life in a new world. You know, leave England, go to North America. Um, you know, leave France. I'm a Huguenot in France. I'm going to leave France and go to, and found, you know, the Netherlands. Like, you know, there's always been a place. And now it's like the whole world is in this monolith that is, you know, authoritarian and anti-capitalist and anti-free speech and anti-free thought and pro-censorship and, um, you know, uh, doesn't want you to be able to control what you do with your time or where you go or who you talk to or how you talk to them or what you do with your body. I mean, it's like really a, a wild world. So I don't want to be pessimistic, but it, it does feel like, you know, if we're the frog being boiled, um, you know, we're, we're getting to a boiling point um, on stuff. And so I, I don't know. I don't know how it's all going to play out. I, I, I don't think it'll be that violent only because at a certain point in time that the, the mercenaries refuse to work for you if you can't pay them, you know? So it's like, uh, yeah, you can put everyone in a prison as long as you have enough money to pay all of the, the uh, prison guards. But, you know, they're going to run out of money before they can pay for all of that. So it's it's, you know... I don't know. It comes don't back know. to controlling the money. Yeah. What yeah. is the that's fundamental? The, that's the reason no. I got into Bitcoin is because you can't you can't solve the world's problems without solving the money. Like, and I and I know that there's the meme like fix the money, fix the world. It is so true. Like, like, you know, it is every protest movement, every countercultural movement, every movement that's out there that has a gripe that it's adamant that needs to be solved. They can only solve that through fixing the money and then effectively equalizing the playing field 
of being able to affect change. But if you don't fix the money, there's a, there's, you're playing against someone who has infinite resources to play against you. And there's just no way to beat that. There's no way to beat that. What do you think the fundamental problem with central banks is? The fundamental problem with central banks is the belief that someone knows how to deploy uh, scarce resources better than people know how to deploy it, their own resources for themselves. That's the fundamental underlying issue. And you can take the perspective that it's um, uh, those people are just ill-informed and they think, you know, they're well-intentioned. They think they can spend the money better than you. They just don't know that they can't. Or you can take the view that they know they can't spend the money better than you, but they don't care because they're spending the money on the things that they want to spend the money on. And they're very aware of how it works. So, but, um, it, you know, money is, is purely a manifestation, a tool for humans to be able to self-organize and coordinate their interaction. That's all money is for. It's a, it is a tool like the English language is a tool. And we use money um, to be able to have a complex society and to distill complex information into a useful way. You know, when you look at the, uh, when you take a Coca-Cola can and you say that the price is $1, there is so much information uh, uh, infused into the price tag of that $1. Think of all of the component pieces of a Coca-Cola can, the, the bottling, the supply, the, the tin that it's made out of, the, the coloring that goes on to it, the, the store that you bought it from, all of these places have their own cost structure to it. And that product is priced in such a way so that all the derivative component pieces of the entire economy that touch that Coca-Cola can are able to do so in a sustainable way. And so that $1 price point distills down the labor of, I mean, you know, it might take a million people collectively across many industries in order to have the requisite pieces to make that Coca-Cola can. So it's, it's an immense packet of data that, you know, some Joe Schmo walks into the store and they're like, shit, Coca-Cola can, that's $1. Hell yeah. Like, you know, we just take for granted that like, you know, we're, our brain is basically like, you know, we just took like this, like a uh, neural network of information diffused into a price. And we, it's just, you know, we just kind of take it at the surface letter level, but you know, money's whole point is to, is to make it so that those things are pos possible and that we're allocating resources in such a way that we maximize for the benefit of humanity, that we maximize that the, the people are getting the degree and the thing that they need to get the degree in, that they're getting trained in the experience that they need in order to provide some service that society needs at that moment or time. Like that's the point of money. And when someone is gets put in charge of that, first off, the hubris of thinking that a, a, an individual or a council of people can diffuse all of the inputs of all prices around the world. It's the most complex thing. We couldn't even build, you know, the, the furthest reaches of AI that we've built in neural networks can't even scratch the surface at the complexity of what that system looks like. And then to just be like, yep, we need more dollars and we need to inject them into this thing. Like it's just, maximum arrogance to think that you can do that well um you know it's 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 uh uh you know it, and once you kind of notice it in central banking you notice it in so many other things too like people wanting to control the weather it's like oh yeah no you know we're going to 
we're going to seed clouds here or we're going to channel rivers here because you know we know we know how it should be and it's like they don't you know you see a cloud here and then little do you know that you create a desert somewhere else like there there it's a system and you're fucking with the system and you think that you're you've solved something the system isn't aware of even though that system took who knows how many millennium or or millions of years to evolve and develop into the system that it is so um yeah i mean I, I i think it's arrogance but then i mean at the same time go look at a third world country where the central bank is like the nephew of the president and there's no there's no delusion that that person knows how to deploy resources uh they just are you know um deploying capital into the lamborghini that they want to drive and the hot models they want to date and the and the 10th mansion they want to buy and you know so we only have that delusion in america because we still have some semblance of respect for the system but in the third world banana republics like they're the same thing as they are here just let's just say more direct and to the point so another very complex system that also is no has no shortage of problems that you have some interesting opinions on uh, is twitter how do you think about kind of the future of maybe a decentralized free speech social platform? I know, you know, as at the conference, you didn't remove the platform from Jack Dorsey because he has a lot of strong Bitcoin positions that do seem to be very beneficial to the community. What do you kind of think the future of like an online forum of ideas, free speech looks like? Cause I know you have went through a Twitter strike, but then you came back cause like what alternative do you have to get your message out there in the way you'd like to? So what's your thinking on that topic? Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't believe in deplatforming anyone. I don't believe, you know, and like some people think that we deplatform certain people from the conference. They just don't know the circumstances. Like we didn't, we would never deplatform Jack. Uh, Chamath didn't speak at our conference. Everyone thought we'd like deplatform Chamath because he made fun of some guy on Twitter in a, in a cringy way. We did. the surfer guy, right? Yeah. Or something. Surfer Jim. We just told Chamath he had to be there in person. And he said, I don't want, I'm not prepared to do it in person. And we said, okay, let's do it next year then. And then everyone inferred from that, oh, Chamath, they canceled Chamath. No. Uh, dude, you know, if if you can't handle ideas and hearing people's ideas and defending yourself from those ideas, uh, then you're not a, a weak make person. <laughs> you're not going to make it. Like, you got to be able to defend yourself from bad ideas. And we should not be coddling people and be like, no, we have to protect people from hearing ideas that... They make them uncomfortable. My God, like, no, like have a little bit of anti-fragility and, and, you know, be able to make your own decisions on if something is good or not good. And, and like, you know, like I am a hundred percent for every hate speech that you can, you can imagine. Like, you know, I think it's detestable. I think that those people make themselves look like fools. But fucking say it. Go and say it. Like it, it's not gonna uh, call me whatever uh, uh, a term you want to call me. It's not gonna phase me. It's just uh, it, it reflects on you, not on me. So you know, I I um, I hate when people try to use a force of power to go up the chain to censor something because they don't want to be challenged by it or they don't want to have to to interface with an idea because they're too uh, insecure in their own belief system and and you know again it gets back to you know are you are you able to allocate resources better than the market can you know 
maybe there are there are cases where censoring someone in the best case um, is helpful to people, but there's an unlimited world of possibilities where you're censoring information that you need to know, like where you know the established uh, fact pattern or the 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 narrative that exists is wrong, and by by you know not fighting you know with for like being censored from alternative ideas is actually really hurting you. And, you know, the fact that people can look at that risk and be like, ah, well, that that risk is worth it in order to, like, you know, uh, not have, you know, orange man say something. I mean, it's just like, wow, have people learned nothing from history? But the answer is no, they haven't learned anything from history. So it's, <laughs> a, sad, it's a sad state of affairs. Um, so anyway, uh, I, you know, the, the thing about Bitcoin is like, uh, terrorists use Bitcoin, criminals use Bitcoin, drug dealers use Bitcoin. There are child, uh, pedof pedophiles that, that use Bitcoin, but guess what? Bitcoin is a thing that all people can use for any purpose, good and bad. And, uh, I would never advocate for, uh, trying to gatekeep people's ability to access financial systems in order to uh, keep those people away because that's how we got to where we are now. That's how you end up pushing away half the planet who are just normal people who are trying to make a better life and they are trapped in a system they can't get out of uh, because, you know, you're worried about someone buying marijuana online. It's just, you know, anyway, I, I won't keep a point on that. Yeah. And the thing other people don't realize just, to jump in is you know all those same groups of people send texts make phone calls use emails right it's like we're not gonna ban those underlying technologies either and you know thank, that's like the other thank god that the king of england wasn't able to uh, mm -hmm. uh ban the transactions of the terrorists that were you know the american uh uh, uh founding fathers you know like thank god that uh, king george wasn't able to censor uh the the pamphlets of ben franklin thank god so, you know, like it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, there are two sides to every transaction. Let's just put it like that. Definitely. Let's run through a quick rapid fire, a quick couple of rapid fire questions and then sign off. Cool. So first question, the El Salvador announcement at 2021 was incredible. Head mind blowing news. Dope. How can you possibly top that in 2022? Yeah, no, that's that's a good question. Uh, we we're trying to figure. You got that a out. lot of time to brainstorm. Yeah, yeah, you got a lot of time. You got like a, a year. But... We're trying to figure that out right now. Uh, we will top it. Um, you know that came together uh, at, like very close to the event happening, and so you know, dude, that was just like the, that really made that event so crazy. Um, but uh, uh, we will top it and that is the bar of which we are going against so i mean it's like our people have to come to this event and they have to uh cheer and cry and boo and laugh and go through the entire emotional gamut if we are going to leave an impression on people that uh uh carries with them into the future and so that happened at this conference people did the entire emotional gamut um, it will happen at, at 2022. Um, guaranteed. Why, why Miami again? Miami we'll, beach this time. 
Yeah. A little different. Uh, because, well, first off, we there were a lot of benefits of being in Miami in terms of, like, access to, to uh, South America, Central America, uh, stability, access. I mean, there's a lot of benefits that, that Miami has, but the primary benefit is the stability of the business environment. Um, you know, there are very few places that will will allow you to, to host a, a conference of any size, a couple thousand people, much less 13,000 people. Uh, Florida is one of the only states. Um, you know, uh, it is a nightmare organizing events right now. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, there's the sound bites that you get in the media about how the pandemic and all this stuff works. And it's it's very interesting uh, doing business and interacting with politicians uh, and, and bureaucrats and hearing what they tell you face to face and how they actually think about this stuff versus what they need to virtue signal, um, even if, you know, like, you know, asking someone, okay, well, what under what conditions can we hold this event? And someone being like, I can't tell you an answer to that because uh, uh, the conditions are a shift in the political environment where me authorizing this is not going to cost me my job because it made a bad headline for this mayor. Like, you can't do business in an environment where, like, there is no solid ground. Um, much less signed contracts that have to be signed a year in advance or more where you're outlaying millions of dollars. I mean, our budget for 2022 is going to be $20, 25000000 million that we've outlaid. Wow. Like, we need to know we can go, you know? So, um, and, you know, like, with the whole COVID situation and events, I mean, we, like, we just had to take the the the, the point, you know, go to the worst possible scenario um, for organizing the event. If you come to this event, you might die. Like you might catch COVID and go home and die. And you need to be aware of that. And if you come to this event, you need to come to it with the full awareness that like, that's a risk that's happening. Okay. Now, whoever shows up, we're going to have an event. Everyone knows that everyone's aware. We're going to go about our lives. We're not going to pretend yeah. that we're going to like be able to do something at the event to keep you from catching it. We're not going to be able to, we're not going to pretend that like your health is our, your health is our paramount goal. It's not. Like, you know, our paramount goal is to spread the ideas of Bitcoin. We hope you come and join us. If you're high risk, don't come watch online. If you can't get vaccinated, don't come watch online. You know, if, if you're scared, don't come watch online. So, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, anti-fragilist. So we had to be Florida's the only place you can have a message like that. I don't even see that as harsh. I mean, there's plenty of other examples in society where it's, if you're not comfortable with these risks, stay home. That's like skydiving or like anything that people do that's fun. And so it's like, that's my, you view. should be as allowed to do it. You know, if you don't want to come, don't come. You that's know, pretty, pretty cut and try. I also take the view that anytime someone tells me that they're hosting a party and if you come, there's a chance you might die. That sounds like a good time, <laughs> you know, like, you know, I don't want to go to a event where they're like, our chief concern is your health. Like who wants to go to a party like that? It's like our chief concern is having fun. How about that? Okay. So, you know, anyway, uh, it, very fortunate that the Bitcoin community is how it is because I don't think any other community um, would have supported us through the pandemic like this community did. And we were the first event of the size that we were in the country, uh, uh, one of the biggest in the world at that time. Um, and it took the Bitcoin community refusing to back down to open up, you know, arguably we've heard from events that are large that you know the name where, you know, because of our event, we tread a path that they were able 
able to point to and say, hey, like there are other – look at what Miami is doing. How can you justify to us, Dallas, that we can't hold an event when Florida is doing this, yada, yada. And so you know, it took the Bitcoin community to tread a path of freedom that the rest of the world can, can walk behind, the rest of the states at least. All right, one more quick question. Uh, you're probably the only person I've ever talked to who's also talked to Edward Snowden. What was the most, most interesting idea you learned from interviewing him? Without a doubt, the most interesting thing was his view on who Satoshi is. Um, uh, it, uh, you know, basically Snowden's view is that it's incredible to the degree of almost being unbelievable that Satoshi was able to be as prolific on the internet as he, he or she or they were, um, and we still don't know who they are. That you leave so many, so much evidence of anything you do online that the people who want to know who you are can know. And uh, for Satoshi to be able to uh, disguise that, um, if they were able to disguise it, like, I mean, if Satoshi's not the CIA or, if, you know, um, uh, implies that they knew very deeply how the internet worked to such a degree that they were able to do stuff that not just some brilliant, you know, uh, a whiz kid could. It's someone who knew the plumbing of the internet. And there's a very small list of people that know the internet that well. I thought it was a very deep insight. Um, and, you know, just adds more mystery and mystique to the, the legend of Satoshi. Who do you think it was? Did he give a name or did he just say, you know, that just somebody no, he that, just put a, that set the bar the plumbing, so, somebody that was involved in the early days of the internet, knew how the plumbing and the piping worked, knew how the internet communication worked and, and used that knowledge in order to, you know, uh, uh, affect how they went to market with this so that they could stay anonymous and the, the deep, deep fucking, um, uh, vision that's that satoshi had to know how big of a deal bitcoin was so that they they went to such far extremes to hide their identity from the beginning before it had any value before it had any users like they knew from the beginning this was going to be big and man you what a visionary what a visionary to just to, to create something and know, wow, this is going to change the world, you know, before anyone else even knew that it existed. Yeah, as Elizabeth Warren would say, if they could outsmart a million super secret shadowy super coders, then they clearly knew what they were doing. That's right. That's right. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. We really, really appreciate you sharing your time and story with us. Uh, you have a media company from what I've heard. Where can people interact with it? And benefit from the work that you do yeah uh bitcoinmagazine.com number one source of trusted information in bitcoin ecosystem the bitcoin conference the best party in all of bitcoin in the world and um carrot best place to get some free sats if you're if you're new to bitcoin and uh if you're a whale in fiat and you got fat stacks of cash Hit up uh, our fund, UTXO. We'll help you get that money to work in free market money. So that's it. Guys, thank you for having me on. Keep it up. You're, you're making me proud of And that wraps up our interview with David Bailey. I mean, you heard it. Super interesting guy with an interesting story and, you know, a great entrepreneur in a booming market. 
Um, he's seen it all in this in this world. He bought the company from Vitalik. I mean, it's just crazy to hear him talk about 2013 and you know all the years he's been in the space. Anyways, my three takeaways. The first of which is we're early. We're still early. He started in 2013. He was crazy early. We've got a lot of, of runway ahead of us. Uh, I think he put it, if you are in the industry for the next 10 years, you're going to be rich, young, and and still early. So keep going. Uh, my second thing is about networking. It's obvious, but the whole world is about relationships. You have to connect with people. You have to find people that you want to talk to, and you got to get in their ear. Otherwise, like no one's ever going to know what you're doing. Um, and the third thing is one of his last points about, about central banks and just how you know, the aggregate of people makes better decisions than any one individual or one small group that is supposed to represent that aggregate can make. And so um, I think that having that mental model in your head um, is, is really interesting when you start to view society that way. Like we should not centralize power into a small group of people when the aggregate can make the decision um, collectively. And, and so those are my takeaways. Super interesting conversation. Really grateful to David for coming on. Thank you, Kyle. Three things for me. I'll make them quick. First is, like you said, the career opportunity in Bitcoin and crypto at large is just massive. We've had Colton Sakamoto on, who's made this point. We've had Mona Elisa make this point. DeFi Andy make this point. Kyle, what are we doing? We've got to get ourselves started in crypto. And that's same goes to you if you're listening and haven't done that. Sounds like the key is just get started, do something, learn stuff, and prove that you're useful and keep going. Second takeaway is the power of this mission of culture, of ideology. He literally says to his people, you're going to work twice as hard, make half as much money. And people are like, hell yes, let me in because they're passionate about the mission. They're working for a greater cause and they're actually happy. And that's the same for the people who in 2013 were making no money, were dead broke, and we're still working on it. It's very hard to bet against a group of people doing something like that. Third takeaway here is just about focus and kind of living your truth. Seems like, you know, there's always the narrative fallacy. There's always the potential that when someone tells the story, they make it a little bit more neat and logical than how things truly shook out. But it does seem, if you do zoom out, that when things started working out for them, it was when they skipped talking about stuff that they were only doing because they thought there was money in it, like enterprise blockchain, like altcoins, uh, but they didn't have any true interest in. That probably reflects why they didn't have much success in it besides the fact that those ideas have not taken off at the same pace as Bitcoin. Point is, they followed what was truly important and interesting to them and said no to what was not, and their success seemed to follow that pattern. That's all for this episode with David Bailey. I agree, Kyle. Such an interesting guy. I would absolutely love to spend more time listening to him and his ideas. Luckily for you, this is not a perfect segue. We have a lot of other episodes with people like David Bailey. They aren't David Bailey, but they're like him. They're very interesting. They're very smart. They're very accomplished. I would highly encourage you to go listen to those episodes. We do our very, very best to avoid anything timely, avoid any, everything relevant to you know current events and more about big picture ideas and principles and things that will always be useful. So even episodes you know 10 and 20 might be some gems in there. Uh, otherwise, if you want to support us, say hey on social media. We are always are eager to hear your feedback. And always eager to also hear that in the form of a rating and review, which you can leave on Apple iTunes. Otherwise, we'll be back in a week or so with another episode. Thanks so much for listening. See ya.